Welcome to the At The Coalface podcast with your host, Jason Greenwood. This podcast is all about what it's really like in the trenches of digital and e-commerce. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another amazing episode of the pod. We've got an incredible guest up for you today. We have got Matt Steinbrecher from Reach Global Payments. Welcome to the pod, Matt. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate you having me. Excited to be here. My pleasure. We met through LinkedIn and you said you'd been following me for a while. We had a little bit of a dialogue on LinkedIn and then that's how you came to be on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I've been loving the content you've been putting out. I think we're pretty like-minded on our views of the industry. So it's always fun to watch people and how, how things have been evolving, especially in these times. Oh, no question about it. And you are based in the Silicon Valley of Texas, the famous Austin. That's right. Yeah, it's nice and hot here right now. It's about 100 degrees Celsius. It's a nice and pitted weather. But yeah, it's it's been an interesting ride here in Austin, just watching all the tech booms coming. So it's, um, yeah, we were t- just talking before that uh, we both hail from the West Coast of the United States. We both come from California as well. So I escaped to New Zealand and you escaped to Austin. Yeah, exactly. Seems like I, I escaped to Austin about three years ago, and then it uh, seems like everyone else from the Bay Area came and followed suit. So it's uh, it's been a wild ride, but it's it's cool to see the change in the city. And it seems all the West Coast podcasters made their way to Austin as well. We got Tim Ferriss out there. We got Joe Rogan out there. I think there's been a mass migration of podcasters. I think it's just a lot of people in general are really just it, Austin's a cool city. It's got a lot of culture and charm, and it's, it's a pretty cool place. And we'll see how that shakes out with the rise of Silicon Valley here, because it's certainly changed. I grew up in San Francisco proper, because so I lived through the dot-com boom and all the Silicon Valley booms. So I've seen the shift in the culture there, because obviously San Francisco is definitely a unique place in itself within the States. And I think Austin's starting to see some of that shift too. But being here firsthand, it's, it's nice to see a lot of the authenticity stay, but you're getting a lot of big celebrities and people moving out here. And yeah, it's good though. I mean, it definitely drives new business, drives new people here. So it's exciting time. Nice. Now with Reach, you guys are a global payments provider. Now we've had some cross-border solution providers on the podcast before. We've had Flavor Cloud on, we've had Balance Payments on, which are a global B2B payments provider. You guys focus fairly squarely on the B2C cross-border payments market. Am I correct? Yeah. So traditionally we were born out of a, we were actually born out of an FX company. So it was a foreign exchange bank based out of Calgary, Canada. It's been around since the early eighties and basically our current CEO and a few other developers that were working at this bank probably eight or so years ago, essentially spun out a, an API that was geared towards online retailers. Cause essentially like online retail has been such an underserved market within the cross-border space in particular. So they served up this foreign exchange solution and then they wrapped payments into it. And then all of a sudden we had this full blown platform that was a pretty deadly combo, but we really started and pioneered in the online retail space. So we work with a lot of big retailers, Revolve Clothing, and then also some larger brands like Everlane, both also based out of the West coast, (laughs) where we're both from as well. But yes, yeah, that's where we started. And pretty recently too, we transitioned into B2B solutions as well. One of the beauty of payments and especially with cross borders, there are definitely a lot of different segments and verticals that you can tackle. And online retail is certainly the one where we kind of started. But at the end of the day, if you have the rails to accept payments on a global scale, you can really apply that to a lot of different verticals with a robust enough solution. So we've been expanding into B2B, lots of digital and SaaS as well, but yeah, for the time being, online retails are bread and butter. Love it. Now, what differentiates you guys? Because if we if we peel this back and we look at it through the lens of your traditional online merchant that maybe sells through a Shopify or a Big Commerce or a Magento, they will have traditionally they'll have a local payment gateway. So if they operate, well, or they may have a, a broader, more global gateway like a Stripe. Or there's obviously multiple payment gateways out there. There's the Brain Trees of the world. There's the PayPal's of the world. There's the Stripes of the world. There's many different payment gateways. And then there's localized payment gateways that are more popular in local regions because maybe they'll get maybe they'll get better rates through those local payment gateways. And mm-hmm. down here we have WinCave operating in this part of the world, which is a very popular payment gateway down in ANZ because of the rates that they provide. 
and how, just for the audience's benefit, I have some ideas of my own, but just for the benefit of the audience, how would you guys differ from a practical merchant perspective and from an implementation perspective? How would you differ, say, from something like a Stripe? Yeah, so that's a great point. And I think one of the one of the things is like payments is pretty difficult, right? It's a complicated space. I like to think of it and compare it to a lot of people, like in everyday people. It's like, kind of like Wall Street, where the dumber they keep you, the more money they make off you. So they just try to make it overly complicated. Fundamentally, yep. we've tried to demystify a lot of that complication, especially to our clients. It's kind of our MO. At the end of the day, if you're a, let's say you're a New Zealand-based merchant and you're selling over to Americans in the States, if you partner with someone like Stripe or even a local provider, even with someone larger like Stripe, who's got a very large presence, the US and globally versus just having a presence in APAC or specifically in New Zealand, no matter who you're using, essentially your bank, you're essentially opening up a merchant account. You're going to Stripe or whoever that localized provider is. And you're going to say, okay, I want to open a merchant account. I want to accept credit cards on my website, whether it's through Shopify, Big Commerce, whatever it might be. Stripe obviously has a lot of connections natively to most of these platforms. So they're usually the de facto powering things like buy payments and all that. But fundamentally what happens is I'm a consumer based in the U.S. And so what happens if I want to have, I have a credit card that's issued from me by a U.S. bank and your bank as a merchant is now based in New Zealand. So what happens is when I type in my credit card onto your checkout, whatever means that might be, at the end of the day, it's a cross-border transaction. My bank is based in the US, your bank is based in New Zealand. And so what happens in that is that my bank, who's giving me a line of credit saying that, Matt, I'll authorize you to, you know, $10,000 as a line of credit, and you can spend as much as you want up to 10 grand, but they still have these algorithms in real time if you're using someone like Stripe where my bank is going to say, okay, great. Stripe might be the payment processor that's pushing this transaction through, but it's going through some New Zealand bank that we've never heard of. And so now my bank is going to say, maybe not, even though he's buying something online. So it's very possible he's just buying a t-shirt from a company overseas. They're still going to think about that as a cross-border transaction. They're going to see that as higher risk and their algorithms are going to start flagging things because of the fact that it's cross-border. Whereas if I went and bought something from a retailer like Revolve, who's based in the U.S., I'm now buying something locally from a U.S. business. So my bank sees, oh, okay, well, that's another U.S. bank. They're within our core ecosystem. And so that's the fundamentals of Stripe, Braintree, eWay, all, any of those players for normal credit card rails, even the biggest ones like the world pays, FISs of the world. All of those guys still sit in these cross-border rails for most of payment processing. And really this is just how like banking networks work and the rails that communicate between my bank in the US and your bank in New Zealand is Visa. That's the network, right? Or MasterCard or Amex or whatever kind of card that is issued from my credit card. And so they're basically talking between what's called the acquiring bank, which would be the bank in New Zealand and the issuing bank, which is my bank as a consumer. So anytime that's cross-border, a bunch of bad things happen. It's more likely to get declined because my bank thinks that it looks like a sketchy transaction. And it's also going to be higher fees for the merchant. And even though there's processors who are very global that can give you access to local banking rails, the only way to get that as a merchant based in New Zealand is now you got to go and open up an entity in the U.S. Now you got to deal with the IRS. Jason, I'm sure firsthand, they're not a lot of fun to deal with. You got to pay taxes. Yep. You got to set up all this stuff. You have all these operational complexities. So that's the way that it's set up is most of these players in the credit payment systems, they're all designed around cross-border and they're just not really built to scale a global world that we live in. And that's one of the fundamental things that we've done is flip that whole thing on its head and always use banking rails that are based on wherever the customer is. So in my example, obviously, we would use a U.S. banking rail, and then we simply just move the money back to New Zealand for the merchant and settle them the fund. Makes total sense. And I guess this is part of a larger discussion around a couple of different things to, related to cross-border transactions. We have, we have merchants nowadays, particularly with the coming recession, where they're going, hey, we need to target markets outside of our own. We need to broaden our horizons. We need to de-risk our business. We need to be operating in more regions than just our local region or just our local broader region. So obviously it's very common for 
New Zealand merchants to be targeting Australia and Australian merchants to be target, targeting mm -hmm. New Zealand. But many brands now are going further afield than that. They're going, hey, with a global recession, it never hits each country at exactly the sa same time with exactly the same amount of intensity. And so while America might be a little bit further ahead on the recessionary front, New Zealand and Australia might be a little bit further behind and various other countries around the world may not feel it nearly as much. And inflation rates are different in different countries around the world. And so brands necessarily are looking further afield for them to say, hey, we have to de-risk de our business. And one way to do that is to target a broader global market with our products. And so there's the two biggest hurdles that brands face with transacting internationally are payments and logistics. And so they got to think about how am I going to get, get my goods to my customer quickly, efficiently, and pain-free for the customer, but also is not going to break the bank for me. But then how am I also going to take payments, as you say, using those localized payment methods that local customers recognize and understand and have faith in and have confidence in to complete the purchase and not abandon the cart. We want to make sure, obviously, that we're charging them in a perfect world. We would charge, we would charge them in their local currency as well so they don't get a shock when they, when they receive their credit card bill. So we want to charge them in local currencies. We want to have local acquiring, as you say, so that we have fewer quote-unquote detected fraud attempts right both from your side and from the merchant side because it's not just it's not just your side where your bank may block the purchase because it because it looks like you're transacting with a brand or a bank that is in some far-flung place outside of your home country but it's also my anti-fraud from my side as well may decline a greater percentage of foreign transactions versus domestic transactions then we also yep. have the question of meeting the local regulations, as you point out, meeting the local regulations of payments, meeting the local regulations of tax remittance, meeting the local regulations around merchant of record, which is actually a big compliance question for international brands as well. So I guess you plug all of the, you obviously don't have anything to do with logistics, but you plug all of those concerns and questions around transacting internationally from a financial perspective. So local currency, local acquiring, localized payment methods, local merchant of record, which becomes you. And then also trying to bring down the cost to merchants of taking those transactions international would be the areas, the, the gaps that you guys plug. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And it's at the end of the day in online retail, be like a behemoth like Amazon come to the table in the last decade. And they can just take over by storm. When you just look at the stats, why have they been so good? They go and they open local warehouses. I just ordered something on Amazon this morning and it already got to my house and it's 4.30 PM here. Like, how do you compete with that in online retail when you're a smaller, fast growing business? If you're just a mom and pop shop shipping out of your garage, that's one thing. But even if you're a billion dollar retailer trying to compete, it's very hard to do so at scale with that type of player. And they set the benchmark of consumer experience. And so when you look at all these operational complexities, a lot of brands are faced with that. They look at all these things, they're like, oh man, multiple currencies, that sounds super risky. New payment methods, less more integrations and things that I have to deal with. I don't know how my customers want to shop internationally. I just know my domestic market or maybe my immediate market and then of course taxes which is a big one that's been a huge thing you look at what's happened in brexit the impacts that have happened with merchants packages getting stopped and delayed at customs all of of course all of the logistical impacts too happening within the uh the pandemic with shipageddon or whatever you want to call it so all these things are pieces that merchants look at and just it's very daunting but when you actually look at the real data and you touched on this in the beginning, one of the super interesting things is since the pandemic, obviously like the rise of digital transactions has exponentially increased. Tons of reports out there saying that it's jumped a couple decades ahead in terms of innovation and all of that, because basically you're forcing people who were once reluctant to buy a pair of shoes online because they like to go and try them on at the mall. Now the mall's closed and you need a pair of shoes to go walking every day or whatever. So you're going to buy it online. So all those people, like you, you got a huge shift in consumer behavior on a global scale. And as a result of that, when you're going and I Google new pair of walking shoes, if I'm based in New Zealand, sure, there's going to be SEO of brands that might pop up that are local Kiwi brands where I can buy something from my domestic uh, country. But at the end of the day, you're also going to get a ton that are coming from Europe or US or Australia or any other market outside of you. 
And so that's where, when we look at the actual stats of how e-commerce grew in general over the pandemic, where you obviously had this huge surge in sales, cross-border grew at twice, it, it outpaced the growth of domestic sales by twice the rate. So basically you've got cross-border sales doubling the sales of domestic growth across the board. We're talking about European-based merchants, US-based merchants, APAC-based merchants. So all around the world, everyone's seeing just cross-border in general grow. Meanwhile, we've got supply chain issues and getting packages and stuff like that. But what you're looking at is absolutely a massive opportunity, right? Because brands have to look at where's the growth? Where's, where's the opportunity for me to find new customers? And if you're seeing a stagnant growth, especially now, obviously the pandemic is, well, in my part of the world, it's largely over at this point, but it's still, right? You have to think about in certain parts of the world, the pandemic is still real. In certain parts of the world, as you mentioned before, right? Like we're having large recession indications here in the US and things are starting to go downhill pretty quickly. And we're feeling the pain every day. Consumers are here. Everyone sees it every day. It's, we're walking, living, breathing, eating it. Whereas in other parts of the world, that might not be the case just yet. So retailers can maximize saying, look, people are going to think twice about, especially with impulse purchase decisions. They might think twice about buying something right now in the States, but because we are optimized for our cross border, we can focus on other areas. Just like if you're selling swimsuits, I wouldn't sell swimsuits in July to, to people in New Zealand and Australia. Yep, It's the same sort of concept, right? It's all about like, where are your customers? What do they want? What is the decision-making mode that they're in? And that's really, all this stuff has really just compounded over these last couple of years since COVID struck the world. It's just, people are thinking a lot more globally and it's a lot easier to get packages around the world, but there's a ton of red tape. And, and so that's really where we come in as that partner, just to help people navigate these waters. Cause at the end of the day, like this is complex stuff. And for a lot of brands, it's just very overwhelming to think about things strategically like this, or even if they think about it and they know how they can execute, they just don't know the best way to do it. And they end up spending hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, legal fees, setting up entities, tech, technical uh, implementations on their website, all that kind of stuff. And it always ends up hurting them versus being an opportunity for them to go tackle a new market in the right way. Let's talk about two of the thorniest areas of all of the areas that you just covered. One being returns slash refunds slash credits and two yep. merchant of record. Yep. When we're starting to think about cross-border transactions, one of the most painful areas is if something reaches somebody and it's the wrong size or it's the wrong color or it's damaged or we need to do a refund and we or we need to do a credit or a partial credit that that becomes a real challenge if you are using a gateway that is not localized then you get slammed in two different ways when you execute the transaction initially then you get bit again if you ever have to do a refund or a partial refund and so i'd love you to discuss how you guys handle that in that scenario and then also Let's talk a little bit further about what merchant of record actually means. And when you transfer the merchant of record from, say, the original merchant, say, let's say they're a New Zealand merchant selling the, let, let, let's say Allbirds was still based in New Zealand. And let's say they were selling yeah. into a customer in the United States and they weren't a United States based company. They were a company based in New Zealand and they were selling to a customer in California. And so if they were selling to a customer in New Zealand, they would be the merchant of record for that customer. However, in your world, if they were selling to this customer in California, you would become a United States-based merchant of record for that international transaction. So let's unpick ref refunds and returns and yep. the merchant of record piece a little bit further, because I think that these two pieces are two of the most complex parts of cross-border transactions. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, with refunds and returns, especially in fashion or consumer electronics, fashion because of size fitting, maybe the color wasn't right, maybe it just doesn't look good on you, you just want to return it. And definitely consumer electronics, if there's issues with it, it doesn't work, whatever, you're going to see super high return rates. And just generally in retail, again, you have to compete with Amazon. Amazon's got the easiest return policy. Give it back to us and your money's back. Or just keep the product. We've been cost us more to ship it back to us than to just keep it, right? So how do you compete with that as a retailer on a global scale? So there's two big challenges. Number one, from a payments perspective, if I am charging someone in a different country, unless we're talking about Western Europe, where everyone's using euros for the most part, I'm going to be now having two currencies involved in that transaction. 
And basically what that means is that when I charged my customer in that initial transaction, let's use Allbirds based in New Zealand and I'm the consumer based in the US. If Allbirds charges me, even if they charge me in US dollars, they might be taking New Zealand dollars back in their bank account and getting settled in New Zealand dollars. And what that means is that basically there's an exchange rate in the middle of that somewhere. Now, someone's going to have to pay that exchange rate. Sometimes that can be the merchant and sometimes that can be the consumer. But what the most common approach is, is that I would get charged as a U.S. consumer in New Zealand dollars. Now, what that means is that I'm basically, my bank's going to charge me an exchange rate, which is not going to be a nice one. It's going to be like the one that I see at the airport and very unfavorable, right? So now I get hit with all these fees. Then let's say I get my pair of shoes, I try them on and they just don't fit right. Now I got to get it. Not only do I have to get those shoes back to New Zealand, which is problem number two, but I actually have to get my money back in my bank. So what happens there is I basically now have to call up Allbirds, say, hey, shoot me over a return slip and fire the money back to my credit card on file. Now what's basically happening at this point is someone's gonna have to pay that exchange rate again. Now usually an exchange rate markup in a nice example, you might get about 3%. And that's on, that's like the, what's called the spread, the difference between the buy and the sell price, the, you know, the currencies, but basically you're going to have about a 3% markup when your bank charges you, it's typically like closer to five or six. And that's just the reality of how exchange rates work. So now you're talking about three to 5%, let's say on the way in, and then another three to 5% on the way out. So you could be looking at 10% just in foreign exchange fees in order for me to get the product from my, from Allbirds in New Zealand to my house in Texas and then back to New Zealand. Just that money flow, right? It's just the foreign exchange. And we haven't even talked about how much the credit card processor charges. Typically, people don't really charge for refunds. They'll just send the money back to the credit card that was on file for the transaction. But you may get charged for that, but you still usually have to pay the incoming transaction fee. So you might pay two or 3% for that incoming transaction fee. And then you also have to pay for the foreign exchange and then you pay for the foreign exchange on the return. And so all these things, let alone as well, that return happens two weeks later. So not only if I'm charged a hundred Kiwi dollars for these pair of shoes, and now all of a sudden that comes out to something totally different with a 5% plus exchange rate back to us dollars. Now, when we return these shoes, and that money is sent back to me on my bank account. Basically, the exchange rates moved over those last couple of weeks. The exchange rates move every nanosecond. Like it, it's a fast market. And the, both the retailer and the consumer are taking on risk of that FX rate fluctuating over time. And so that sucks, right? Because you might not get back as much as you, as much as you originally paid. Or the retailer may have to end up taking the hit and the risk of the exchange rate fluctuation. But there's always going to be winners and losers because you're basically buying one currency and selling another. And the guys in between as the banks, they're going to charge you like three to 5% to make that transaction happen. So you're getting hit on both ends with exchange rates. You're paying payment processing fees. And that's just for the payment side, which is a huge pain. One of the things that we've done to solve that and help with it is we actually lock in our exchange rates for 90 days. So the moment that you hit complete order on a website, we lock in that exchange rate for the purpose of refunds for a 90 day period. So what that basically means is if I have a 90 day return policy and I paid, let's just say it was a hundred dollars, uh, New Zealand dollars for that pair of shoes. And that ended up being 80 us dollars, which is definitely not the exchange rate, but if it was 80 us dollars, that's basically what I pay. Allbirds gets back hundred Kiwi dollars. And then when we make that return, everybody makes the same amount back, right? Allbirds shells out the 100 Kiwi dollars and I get back my 80 US dollars. So everybody's happy. There's no risk of fluctuation. The prices that we're seeing at the time of checkout are the same that I see on my bank statement and the same that I'll get back if I inevitably get a full refund. But now there's a huge problem of actually getting that, prop, that, that product back to New Zealand. And I think that's one of the trickiest things for retailers now is especially with this global growth, like what do we do? If it only costs Allbirds 15 bucks to manufacture that shoe, that's probably the cost of shipping for them to get it back from the US to New Zealand, let alone if we were going to a different country, let's say Europe, and they had duties and taxes applied to that order as well, are they gonna go and chase down the government and get that money back? That's another struggle people are facing right now. So the smart thing to do is keep that package itself in the country so that you can repurpose it, repackage it at a local 3PL or something like that, 
or just aggregate that inventory, have someone take it into a local warehouse, aggregate that inventory, and then ship it through a container on your own sweet time versus trying to immediately push that inventory back to your warehouse in New Zealand to only send it back to a net new consumer who buys it in a couple of days. And so these are all the struggles that retailers are looking at because a lot of them, you have to offer free shipping and free returns, right? That's a very common thing. Maybe not free shipping, but definitely free returns is a very common practice that we're seeing in the retail industry. And it's all driven by Amazon, right? It's all driven by a lot of people, especially in the pandemic. They didn't shop online before. Now they come shop online. They want to make sure that they're confident in their purchasing decision. And most of the time, those refunds don't happen. But again, in fashion and e-commerce, refunds are a lot higher because of that fact. You're getting a product and you might want to ship it back and send it back. So those are all the main pain points there from those perspectives, at least from payments and logistics, for sure. Absolutely. And when we unpick the merchant of record component of this from compliance and regulations perspective in the domestic market that you are shipping to. So in that example, where a New Zealand company is shipping to a customer in the United States, obviously that when it when as soon as it enters the United States, as soon as it crosses the border in at the port of entry into the United States, it now has to comply that shipment, that order, that payment now has to comply with local tax law, has to comply with local duty regulations, has to comply with local tax remittance law back to New Zealand as well. Both it has to comply with domestic law when it hits the United States, and it has to comply with international law in terms of remittance back to New Zealand as well. So there's definitely some complexities with the merchant of record. So maybe we could talk a little bit further about what it means to be the merchant of record how you take on that, I guess, risk, responsibility, and liability as soon as it crosses border outside of the home country where it was either manufactured or shipped from, and what that means for you and what load that takes off of the domestic merchant once you become that merchant of record. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot of, I think, confusion in the online retail industry right now around what merchant of record is because there's a handful of different providers that offer different levels of service. So traditionally, border free was really the, they used to be called 51st state and anyway, but they were really like the pioneers of merchant of record. If you look at their portfolio, it's a lot of like Macy's and Neiman Marcus and those types of players, because those are all huge box office brands that are massive here in the States. And they just needed someone to just handle international. So we've got billions in assets of our department stores for brick and mortar, but we have this online presence and we want to be able to ship internationally. We just want a distributor to handle everything for us. And so traditionally with Merchant of Record, it, it literally started from like Macy's would you know, pack up a t-shirt or whatever that someone from Canada or New Zealand or wherever in the world they were bought. They would ship it to a border-free warehouse. Border-free would unpack it, QA it, make sure it looks good, repackage it, and then fire it off because they were truly the distributor. Now, the term Merchant of Record truly just means who is selling that product to the end consumer. And so traditionally, it was really like a full distribution channel. And I think what a lot of players in the space do is they act as that distribution channel, which essentially means to the retailer that you're outsourcing all of your cross-border to this merchant of record. And that's where a lot of them, a lot of the, a lot of the bigger players in the space, like the Global East and the Border Freeze and eShop Worlds, a lot of them take that more of an outsource model. So they'll handle the logistics, they'll handle the payments, They'll handle uh, your tax and duty compliance, but a lot of times they also take on your checkout. They might also take on the customer service to the consumer. So when we go through that whole returns fiasco that we were just talking about before, they might be the ones that intercept uh, the communications to your direct customers. And I think for a lot of brands, that's a little bit off-putting to a degree because people are spending millions of dollars on their brand, on their audience, on their authenticity, on their lifetime consumer value. They're trying to create this persona so that people buy t-shirts from them or shoes from them, not from Amazon, right? That's what makes them different. That's, that's what direct consumer versus a marketplace model is. So it's very key for these brands to be able to retain that direct communication to their shoppers. But also there's all this crazy complexity when it comes to selling globally. And one of the key things that we've done is this merchant of record model. So as I said, in kind of the beginning, we were born out of this foreign exchange company that ended up becoming a payments company. And then we leveraged Merchant of Record as a payments company. And that's where we found our niche within the market and obviously tackled the online retail vertical to start. And the key thing that we were able to do is decouple some of those other pieces that traditional Merchant of Record providers do. 
So we don't touch logistics at all. And we allow merchants to have their own direct relationships with logistics carriers. Obviously we have partnerships with all of them. So like we strategically work with a lot of them and we're very familiar with like DDU versus DDP and best practices, all that kind of good stuff. But we don't really touch that. And I think that gives some flexibility. And we also don't touch your checkout. We don't hijack the checkout in any way. We just work like a normal payment processor, just like what a Stripe checkout looks like. That's the same way that we would operate. And the other key piece is that these brands get to retain a lot of their, their direct communication to their end shoppers. Now, when you talk about payments specifically, and what we've done in the space, which is a little more unique with this merchant of record term, is if you wanted, let's say it's all birds based in New Zealand, and now they want to sell locally in the U.S., what they need to do is actually create a U.S. entity. They need to open a U.S. bank account. They need to have some sort of officer here, meaning like a real employee on the ground, which means they need a payroll program in the U.S. They also need privacy laws in the U.S. They have to deal with all this different compliance stuff that now just snowballed into, we just wanted better rates for our payment processing, or we just wanted to make it easier for our customers to communicate or whatever it might be, right? And now they had to open this entity and all of a sudden they've now become a multinational corporation. And the amount of red tape that takes, typically we see on average, it's at a minimum half a million dollar spend between legal fees, stuff like that, tax optimization setups, compliance, hiring people, all that kind of stuff. It's typically about half a million dollar setup and 12 to 18 months just to actually get your entity operational. From there, you also then need to have a merchant account. So you have to sign up a merchant account with Stripe again in the US because now you're going to move all of your US money to your US bank account. And even if you're a business based in New Zealand, you'll just send a wire transfer every couple of weeks or whatever, moving those US dollars to New Zealand dollars and then paying out your employees and all your operational costs for your warehouse and whatnot in New Zealand. But now all of a sudden, again, you're a multinational corporation. Most people don't want to deal with that. And the biggest one is tax. So if you're selling as a US based business, you now have to handle all of the sales tax and sales tax in the US is wild. It's not as easy as GST like over there in New Zealand. It's uh, it's very complex and there's all these weird de minimis values and it's totally different based on counties and municipality and state tax. So there's a lot of different pieces to it. And we have a lot of states here in the US. So like everything, we make it big and complicated. And so that's a that's another thing that a lot of people have to deal with. And so what we've done within our model is I always describe it as like a, an entity as a service, almost it's like a merchant of record as a service, because you're able to utilize our local banking rails here in the United States or Europe or Canada or Australia, even or about 50 or 60 countries internationally, but you don't have to have all that red tape set up. And so one of the key points is being able to outsource to a merchant of record provider. They are now the merchant of record. So they're selling your products to the end consumer not legitimately you still might export that product from new zealand and ship it to the consumer based in texas or wherever but from a regulatory perspective and an auditing perspective that merchant of record is now legally obligated for the tax liability and so a lot of the times they will take that on and handle that for you as a consumer and that's one of the things that we've been able to do is handle that tax liability we have all the payment functionality and on top of that, we build in our foreign exchange solution, which helps with things like those refunds we were talking about before. So when you kind of couple that all together, what you're really getting is like global tax compliance, foreign exchange flexibility, and de-risking some of the complexity around international currency markets. And then you get your local payment methods, right? So you're giving your customers a better shopping experience. That's going to increase your conversion rate. And you're also going to save money while you're doing it because domestic is always superior to cross-border. Same thing as if you open a local warehouse, right? If you have a distribution center now based in Los Angeles, you're going to be able to get your packages to your customers in the U.S. a heck of a lot faster. Whereas if you were shipping it from Auckland, it's going to take a lot longer, right? It's going to be more costly. It's the same exact concept. And that's what we've done within the payment space specifically. But there are a lot of different merchant of records and they do slightly different flavors of different things. But traditionally, it's like an a la carte distributor model, whereas we've focused in that vertical just around payments because we've realized that with the rise of platforms and plug and play integrations and lots of different specialized providers, people want flexibility. They want to basically say, hey, I just want this and this as an a la carte solution versus like a set. And I think that's one of the keys of what we've seen in the industry and how we position ourselves. Now, one of the other, there's actually two other considerations that come to mind immediately when I would consider something like 
reach, there's two other things that I as a merchant would definitely think about. A, what integrations do you have with my e-commerce platform or the popular e-commerce platforms in the market? Is it plug and play? Is it turnkey? Do I just put in an, an API key or do I just put in my username and password or whatever it might be that authenticates me with you? And then is it turnkey? Can I just turn it on quickly and easily with a few clicks and a few configuration? Once I have my account all established with you and everything ready to go, how quick and easy is it for me to turn it on my website uh, across all the major common platforms in the market? And then two, anti-fraud. You touched on it very lightly, but maybe you can talk a little bit about those considerations around how easy is it to turn your solution on? And for that matter, that's one of the, from my perspective, that's one of the key differentiators between payments providers is how easy is it to get up and running with them in the first place on my platform of choice? And then two, what does anti-fraud look like? Do I still need a third-party anti-fraud solution sitting in between me and reach or me and any other payment gateway that I might look at considering? Or do you handle that yourselves and do you take on that responsibility, that liability, and you make sure that you are using local fraud detection rules as opposed to international fraud detection rules, which we know that the moment you go international, declinature rates go through the roof and you can be missing out on a lot of opportunities. So maybe you can speak to the integration, the challenge of integration and what you integrate with and how, and then also how you handle anti-fraud. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We design ourselves as API first. Again, I think we, we looked at players like Stripe who made it super easy for people to integrate across platforms and things like that. And that's why they've taken the market by storm. Same with Adyen, just in terms of payment processors. Um, and I think what we've embodied is always having an API first integration. Now to do a full API server side integration with a payments company is as any retailer listening will know, is a very painful process typically. And so for us, we we do build pre-built integrations to all of the major platforms, minus a couple of them like uh, PrestaShop, for example, where we might not have a native integration, but we have some workarounds where merchants can still access it. But for all the others like Woo, Magento, Fi is, is a tricky one because Shopify payments is obviously a, a conflict of interest, I would say, but something that we do service quite a bit and have a lot of merchants on that platform too. And then there's some other players like Big Commerce who are starting to come in as well. And really having that plug and play integration is super key. And that's something that we typically offer because it just, it eases that pain, right? I don't think anyone likes going through a normal integration. If you have a custom built website, for example, we're API first. So that's what a lot of our businesses are. They're built on some frame, custom framework, or maybe they have a fully headless site, if you will, which we typically just called a bespoke website built uh, before the headless terminology came around. But at the end of the day, we've tried to make it as easy as possible. We have drop-in tools to do that. So we do have pre-built integrations to the major players. We obviously add to those and enhance them over time, but there are some where there's not a lot of merchants that sell cross-border. It's not as much of a pain. And so there's some smaller platforms like a Wix, for example, where most of the retailers or businesses that are on there aren't necessarily going to have a lot of this pain. Whereas someone on Magento, for example, is very likely looking at this front and center in terms of their corporate strategy of how they grow. So we try to make that as painless as possible with those pre-built integrations. Some are in the app stores, some of them are private apps, but at the end of the day, it certainly helps. And then we have lots of front end apps as well within those same platforms to basically help with the currency configuration because your payment gateway is only one part of your cross-border your cross-border product or your experience rather and just collecting the credit card details or the paypal account or klarna or whatever that's just on the payment page but you also have to now localize the shopping experience for that customer whether they're in canada or bangladesh or australia you want to show them their local currency make it so it's nice for them. So they have a seamless and smooth shopping experience. So that's something that we support too, just to help with that front end sort of shopping flow leading up to the checkout, which is a, a gateway plugin as well. So we have that for the major platforms and the, uh, the fraud is an interesting one, very similar to the tax liability and some of the tax complications. I see that all the time. We work with a lot of Australian-based merchants like Shopo and Tropica and Baby Boo and quite a few other brands. And a lot of what they found when we were doing some investigations on what their decline rates were, a lot of the times it was because they were too harsh on their US consumers. Things like, like a billing and shipping mismatch would cause a fraud ding. 
And when we look at stuff like that, I might buy something like my billing address could be totally different from my shipping address. And that's normal consumer behavior here in the US. And so that shouldn't be dinged for fraud. That shouldn't just decline the transaction. It maybe it needs to be looked at a little more thoroughly, but there's so many other elements to what consumer fraud looks like here in the US versus just down south in Mexico versus what it would look like in Australia. And so all those consumer nuances of behaviors, it's super important. Really good example, like in, in Latin America, it's really common where because getting a credit card in Latin America, like an actual cross-border enabled credit card that can be used for online transactions from US merchants or New Zealand-based merchants, getting access to a credit card like that is very difficult. And so oftentimes what happens is the head of the family gets access to the credit card through the bank, but then all, the whole family, the extended family uses that. And so you might get a ton of different emails linked to one credit card. And that's an example of in the US, that would be a high risk of consumer fraud because it's not typical. I'm going to have 12 emails that are linked to my one credit card. Probably I got like my personal email and my work email and maybe one more. And those will be linked through previous digital transactions to my fraud history to my one credit card. But if we had 12 emails linked to my credit card here in the US, that would throw a flag for fraud. Whereas in Latin America, totally different ballgame. And if you don't have, if you don't understand the local consumer behavior, you're not going to be able to be successful tapping into that market. And that's just like one of hundreds of examples of how things are in a certain way of the world. You need to understand that when you're going into that market and investing, you know, when you're looking at your ROAS and in, into Mexico and you're like, we're declining a bunch for fraud, must be a lot of fraud there. And then you actually dig into that fraud report and you're like, oh, this is why it's because of this email thing. That's a great example of one of the things that we help with, but we also take on a lot of that risk uh, or all of that risk for fraud. But the key in the way that we do it is you, you could use like a Forder or a Signified or a Riskified. We do work with a lot of those solutions as well, where they can give you like an insurance package or do the manual reviews on your behalf as a merchant. We do work with those, but we also do it in-house as well. Because one of the ways that our system works is we don't charge you a dime unless there's a successful transaction. And so what it does is it directly puts an incentive in our core to make sure that we're, I call it like wringing out the washcloth, say, where you're really squeezing out every last drop of legitimate transactions without risking a ton of fraud and chargebacks because chargebacks just suck. It's not a lot of fun to deal with, but we're able to take that on as the merchant of record. And that's what's one of the other cool elements to the, uh, the merchant of record model is that you're offsetting a lot of the tax compliance, but you're also offsetting the fraud. And with the plug and play integration, it usually makes a lot of sense to enhance your overall shopping experience for your global customers. Beautiful, beautiful. Listen, Matt, it's been super, super enlightening, super fun to talk to you. This whole concept of cross-border payments, cross-border transactions, cross-border seas, foreign exchange, anti-fraud, native integration, local platforms, e-commerce platforms, as well as the local banks and credit card providers and compliance and and duty and merchant of record. We covered a lot of territory today, and it is a complex beast. And if someone was wanting to, I guess, get a hold of you guys, how do you guys make your money? Now, I'm guessing that, that you guys pitch yourself as a one-stop shop for international cross-border payment services. But how do you guys make your money and how is it best for someone that might be interested in your services to just simply go to withreach.com? Is that the best way to get a hold of you? And how much can a merchant expect to pay for this plethora of services that you guys offer? Is it going to is it going to break the bank for the merchant? Like how expensive is this, I guess, on average for the average merchant to be able to bring these powerful localization features to their payments infrastructure? Yeah, the beauty of it is whenever you do something locally versus cross-border, always, and at the end of the day, what we're basically doing is optimizing the overall payment flow through our extensive banking network to make it cheaper for us. And therefore we pass that savings on to the merchant. And so a lot of the times your sales are gonna go up because your acceptance rate will go up, your conversion rate will go up because customers are having more of a domestic shopping experience to them, even though you might be halfway across the world. But because you're actually transacting locally, your fees go down. And when we do business cases, typically, we're usually saving people anywhere from 20 to 70%, depending on the market that they're selling into primarily or markets, the countries they're selling into primarily on their actual bottom line payment processing fees. 
And so what that does is it helps them save money while increasing their top line revenue because their overall GMV is going to increase by localizing the transaction to the consumer. So consumers are happier, merchants are happier. The banks make a little less money, I won't lie. So they're probably the ones that get the shit end of the stick here. But that's all about just kind of changing the world a little bit and growing up out of some cross-border rails as we look at new technologies like blockchain and things like that, like really trying to focus on how do we just optimize payment flows to keep it in local country? And at the end of the day, it ends up being cheaper and more efficient. So oftentimes we see that we're saving our clients a ton of money. We do this as part of our engagement process. Whenever we talk to brands or retailers, we straight up just say, you know, what to give us your setup. And we actually go through and typically we'll offer a free complimentary audit. Essentially say, here's what you're paying domestically. Here's what you're paying cross-border. Here's what you pay with us. And then we'll show you the difference. And what we do in that as our engagement process is we're really just giving you a free audit of what you're truly paying, like what your all-in cost is. And I'm talking like FX, fraud fees, how much you're getting hit with chargebacks, your actual processing fees, uh, domestic and international and broken out. That's what we do as part of our business model because we're all data-driven. We don't really, we're not a good fit for business. <laughs> we don't, what's the point? So that's our engagement process. Best way to reach out is definitely with reach.com. You can book a time. My name is Matt Steinbrecker, and you can obviously hit me up on LinkedIn as well. Happy to always chat, but we're all about education and just demystifying a very complicated piece of our industry. And most of the time, we're usually open for a chat just to help give people an audit and understand what their pain points are that they probably don't even know about, to be totally honest. So we peel back that onion and help educate retailers on how to optimize their overall business. Love it, mate. Really appreciate all the insights knowledge that you've shared with me and with our audience. It is a complex beast. You have helped to make it easy with reach. And if merchants want to go to withreach.com, they can reach out to you and then they can reach out to you on LinkedIn. If they've got any specific questions, they want to DM you. And for more information, thank you for, uh, thank you for sharing with us today. Now we're at the point of the pod where I turn the tables on myself. I turn the microphone over to you. I let you ask me one question, any question that you like, and I do my very best to answer it. Microphone over to you, Matt Steinbrecker, withreach.com, Reach Payments. What is your question for me? Okay, this will be a good one because I know you've been in the industry for a while. But, all right, so I don't know, what's it been? Five years ago, maybe, Omnichannel was the big thing. Then four years ago, whatever, it was AI. Now we've got a lot of headless stuff. That's probably on its tail end. What do you think is the big buzzword in our industry right now? When you're talking about trade shows and what everybody's pushing, Headless seems to be just on the tail end of its uh, its lifespan here. In Thank God. That's all I got to say. Thank God. I know. <laughs> I know, man. I'm with you on that. <laughs> but what do you think is the next big trend? That's my question for you. Metaverse, baby. Nah, look, <laughs> there we go. That, that's uh, metaverse and metaverse and we didn't even go down the rabbit hole of cryptocurrencies because i think that is a big piece of the infrastructure for making global payments easier right at the end of the day we didn't even talk about cryptocurrency whether you guys accept cryptocurrency whether you're looking at accepting cryptocurrencies in the future which i suspect you will as soon as they go a bit more mainstream i suspect you'll want to support those because it brings your cost down brings merchant cost down brings customer cost down and it speeds up the transaction layer as well but let's leave that off to the side because that's probably a whole nother show on its own but i definitely think that the metaverse has merit in the sense that oh let's remove all the hype let's remove all of Mark Zuckerberg's craziness from this discussion. <laughs> Let's remove all of the insanity of merging man and machine and be, us all just becoming part of this global Borg, um, which may happen on a long enough time horizon. We may get there. But I think if we just simply look at if we look at the metaverse as effectively mainstream VR, mainstream virtual reality, where we no, now no longer are dependent on this 2D physical screen in front of us, whether it be our laptop or a mobile phone, if we're no longer reliant on that and we're creating rich virtual experiences that are not only in some cases indistinguishable from the physical real life experience, but are fantastical in the sense that we can do things in virtual reality. And if you talk to any gamer that, that does VR gaming, they'll tell you how fantastical it can be. And so I think we can bring these fantastical experiences to the traditional, because I don't know about you, 
but I think the vast majority of physical retail is boring as shit. I actually don't like physical shopping. Probably 95%, 90 to 95% of my shopping, I do online specifically because I don't really like the physical retail experience. And so I think if we can bring an almost create your own story type of journey in the physical retail, but we're bringing that into the virtual so that we can create this create your own shopping story. I think we're going to get there. I think we'll eventually get there. Now, the downturn has slowed down the billions of dollars of investment going into metaverse experiences, but I think we eventually get there. I think within five to 10 years, it may not have reached mass adoption yet, and it may not have replaced the cell phone, but I think we're a lot way a long way down the path from where we are today, where we have relatively consistent online experiences. Some would say maybe perhaps bordering on boring nowadays because from one website to the next, from an e-commerce perspective, they look and feel very similar. And yeah. and again, that's the Amazon effect at play here. And then we have the physical experiences, which by and large are very similar. When you walk through a mall and you walk in from one shop to the next shop, there's not a tremendous amount of differentiation in that experience. Whereas in the metaverse world, once we have standards and i think the biggest thing holding back the metaverse adoption now is there's no standards it's like the old days of beta versus vhs or any of the other scenario totally. where we don't have standards right? Until the web came down to html ss and javascript until those became the standards of the modern internet there was it was the wild west we had bloody flash e-commerce websites made out of entirely out of flash or made out of frames so we until we reached high levels of standardization in our industry and then we and then we had lots of platform plays that were turnkey platforms where you could just instantly turn on an e-commerce website in a matter of minutes using something like Shopify or BigCommerce. Until we had those mainstream platforms, it was hard. It was bloody difficult to go selling online, and now it's very easy. We'll get there. Once we have standards in the metaverse and once we have turnkey platforms in the metaverse for commerce, I think adoption will accelerate very quickly. So is it a buzzword today? 100%. 100%. I don't encourage any of my clients to go and try to set up a metaverse experience today, but in five years, we're going to be having a very different discussion once we come out of this. Once we come out of the flush the crap down the toilet of this recession, once that all goes away, the hype goes away, and we get back to nuts and bolts of actually growing successful businesses and creating amazing customer experiences, once we get back to that, I think the metaverse will take off. Yeah. I agree, man. I think that's that's definitely the buzzword of its day to day. The next buzzword is going to be survive retail, survive. <laughs> yeah, that that is increasingly even in the last two months that has become the word on everyone's lift lips. It's survive and then hopefully thrive on the other side of this thing. Yeah, exactly. But no, I agree, man. I think the I think the metaverse is definitely there, and I I, I totally assimilate with. I'm looking at hundreds of websites a week, all these different retailers and brands, and all sorts of shopping experiences, and it's just very. It's very dull, starting to dull the senses. So when you see something exciting and new, you're like, ah, okay, let's try this out. But not quite there with the mass adoption, but I couldn't agree more. Awesome, my friend. Listen, again, thank you very much for coming and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge and your experience with us and enlightening the audience on cross-border commerce, cross-border payments, cross-border fraud, and all the other things that go along with trying to sell to an international audience. Really appreciate your time and speak soon, mate. Are you a merchant or software vendor that is focused on e-commerce or omni-channel? Then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to see how we can help you scale your business.